0: A couple of weeks ago I was in the library one Saturday working on this particular sermon when my nose started making like a tap and it didn't stop. And I thought that would be a strange look to be standing up trying to preach, going like this all the time. So on the way home I rang Phil and I said, You know how we talked about having a reserve sermon up your sleeve? Do you think you could make it? Oh yeah, I will. So I'm not sure whether you popped that out that afternoon or you had some thoughts already, but I did want to say thank you. Now, I don't know what it is about this sermon, but I now sound like a frog. But I was determined to do it anyway. So if you can spare me a prayer, I'd appreciate it. Well, my kids grew up in the era of Barney the Dinosaur. Do you remember this guy? Just nauseating. Do I hear an amen? Yeah. Another much better part of their era was Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. I've talked about this before, but one of my boys was particularly into Star Wars. So I loved taking him to those movies because I am too. And The first time he saw um, this movie, his question when a new character showed up was, Dad, yeah, is he a goody or a baddie? He needed a slot for everyone in the narrative, I see the parents nodding their heads, to fit into so he could make sense of it. And for him, at seven or eight, there were two slots, goody and baddy. And I'll come back to this. But listen to this from Acts 11. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like, A large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. Now at that very moment, Three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he'd seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon is called Peter he will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved as I began to speak to them the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning and I remembered the word of the Lord how he had said John baptized with water but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit if then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. and They praised God, saying, and God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is Peter simply repeating to the Jerusalem church what had happened with Cornelius at Joppa that I read to you and talked about a few weeks ago. Luke describes him as being criticized by the circumcised believers, which I can't help thinking is Luke having a bit of fun with us. Because at that time, all the male believers were good circumcised Jews. Cornelius was in fact the first male believer not to get that unkindest cut of all. Well, Peter deals with the challenge quite well, and I think he shows his smarts. He has learned as a leader. The first thing he did was he took six witnesses with him to meet Cornelius. So he would not be relying just on what he said took place when he had to explain himself later. And second, he let the story speak for itself rather than feeling the need to justify what had happened. And I think there's a truth there. That if God is in something, you don't have to justify what's happened. He does not need an advocate, a defender. A few years ago, I was attending an evening course on prophecy. It's good to do things that challenge you now and again. I showed up late on the Friday night, which was the last night of the course, and the convener asked me, would it be okay if the people here prophesied over you? Sure, I said. Well, nothing they said really landed for me. But the next morning I woke up and I realized that one word from one person was from God for me it was as clear as a very clear thing. I ran into the woman who brought that word some months later and I thanked her. She remembered me but she did not remember the word. She told me she often has words for people and she has learnt that her role is simply to pass it on. To let the recipient work out what it means and if it Truly is of God. The word speaks for itself. I was impressed with her and her approach. And likewise, here, Peter let his story of his encounter with Cornelius speak for itself. No attempt to explain it or to tease out its implications. I think smart, I think wise. Peter took six witnesses and just told the story because he knew it would not be well received. However, the resistance was not because these people, which are called in the New Testament Judaizers, were bad people, that they were baddies. They weren't. Like my boy watching Star Wars we tend to oversimplify the New Testament story. In the Gospels, it's Jesus who is the ultimate goody, the disciples are bumbling goodies, and the Pharisees are the arch baddies. But actually, there was a lot of good that the Pharisees did. They were the lay teachers of and preachers to the people. They supported the synagogues, the temple worship. Many of them, perhaps most, were respected and loved in their communities, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who are positively mentioned in the Gospels. Well, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, The mantle of being baddies passes to these Jewish believers who think that Jewish convert, Gentile converts should be circumcised and they should keep the law of Moses, including temple worship, Old Testament law, and the feasts. This is the big issue. The big issue that these first generations of Christians had to contend with, was being a Jesus follower some sort of new expression of Judaism, of the Jewish religion, or was it a whole new faith? I imagine that when the Jewish belief, Jerusalem believers heard what Peter had been up to out in Joppa thinking, shrieking, He's done what? The text says that they criticised him. I suspect that's an understatement. It's likely that they wanted to rip him a few new bodily orifices to go with the ones that he already had. And he ate with Gentiles? Ooh, yuck. Yuck. Think of the cooties you might get. It's a little bit like the attitude we had as young boys to playing with girls in the playground. Don't like that idea at all. Luke records that at the end of Peter's story, they praised God. I imagine that some of them were genuinely amazed and delighted. The early adopters who saw what God was doing And embraced it. Yeah. But I think a lot of the good people there would have given a very weak yay. With an eye roll to their sympathetic mates. They kept their powder dry for another day. Like those who oppose the pastor and say to themselves, we'll see you off, son. We have seen off many pastors before you and in many ways you are just one more. Theirs was a tactical retreat rather than a full-on surrender. And as I have sat with this passage and tried to understand their world, I am increasingly convinced that they were not baddies. Now don't misunderstand me, they were wrong to require all followers of Jesus to become orthodox Jews. If they had prevailed at the time, the consequences for the emerging Christian faith would have been incalculable and it would not have been good. Peter put it well, a few years later at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 when he spoke about why the church should not require Gentile believers to follow the law of Moses. He said this, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? That's the law he's talking about. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they are. But try and put yourselves in the shoes of these people for a moment. These are our Christian brothers and sisters. And they have boldly broken with the orthodox faith of their family and the authority of the temple priesthood. Most of them, I suspect, would have paid quite a high relational price for that. No small thing to break with your family and your community in a small agricultural place like ancient Israel. Then Peter goes and baptizes an uncircumcised Roman soldier, Cornelius. What does that mean? Does this beautiful, holy law that God gave Moses in Sinai not matter anymore? God miraculously delivered our people from slavery in Egypt for something better, a moral, individual, and communal life that God outlined in his law. Who are we if the law just doesn't matter anymore? Was it all for nothing? I imagine that every intuition in their being would have screamed, no, no, no. But they'd be thinking, don't get me wrong, Peter's a great guy but he's burning the whole house down. And once it's gone, it'll never return. We can't let him do that. If we take this step, if we admit uncircumcised Gentile believers, there'll be no way back to our families, no way back into the Jewish community, no way to make peace. That bridge which is pretty shaky at the moment, will be finally and utterly burnt. Think of the losses and the grief that is in play for them. Hard for them. Listen to the second second half of chapter 11, down to verse 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, also Proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. Now, news of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of truth. Faith, sorry. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year, they're associated with the church and brought and taught a great many people. And it wasn't Antioch. That the disciples were first called Christians. Now, this group here were believers that were scattered to the four winds back during the persecution after Stephen's execution. These were not people who just heard Peter's story about Cornelius. So went out sharing the gospel with Gentiles. This lot had already left town well before. So God was acting the same way in two different places quite separately. Leading his church to share the gospel with Jews, yes, but with the whole world. Which was the original Great Commission. Now we don't know the names of these early pioneers. But God did. He knew them, and he inspired them. Now, the fact that the Jerusalem mothership sent Barnabas out to see what's going on of itself shows that they hadn't quite got to the point of admitting uncircumcised Gentiles into the church. Despite what was said to Peter, it was clearly still a controversial issue and I notice in following the, the Ukrainian conflict at the moment that when the Ukrainian army takes a chunk of territory, they don't claim it until, the, until they've resisted the counterattack that inevitably will come and if they can hold it then they claim it as conquered, otherwise it's still in the grey zone. Barnabas Is an impressive guy. He comes to Antioch to see his countrymen, he was from Cyprus, preaching up a storm and and it's going great guns. But he has the wisdom to focus on the main thing, which is the obvious fact, obvious to him, that God is in this radical new work. So he doesn't get in the road. It was probably wild messy and a bit nuts in the way that many new moves of God initially appear. Even though he is the man from head office, sent out a bit like an internal auditor to check on them, Barnabas does not try and take control. Instead, he draws on who he is. We're told he's a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And he encourages them. But he also was wise enough to know that he needed help. And that Paul, his old mate, had the right sort of gifts for this occasion. So he went down the road to Tarsus to find him, brought him back, and together they had this wonderful teaching ministry. And it was good. Then this prophet Achabas shows up and he foresees a famine coming. And they all knew that Judea would really suffer in that situation because it was quite a poor part of the world anyway. So they decided to send a financial gift back to the Jerusalem church. This time of amazing, unstructured growth has borne good fruit as the Antioch church cared for their suffering family that I imagine most of them had never met. And this says to me that they were truly being transformed by the Spirit because that is the spiritual fruit of kindness coming through. Now, when I stand back from this chapter, I think that the Judaizers' fears were right. Baptizing uncircumcised Gentiles was the start of a massive change. The faith became universal, not just this little sect or group within Judaism. We are told in verse 26 near the bottom there that this is where the believers were first called Christians. Something which distinguished them from Jews. The two were not the same anymore. And the other change I think that is starting here is that Christianity's center of gravity was starting to move from Jerusalem to Antioch. And in Antioch was where the Jewish and the uh, Gentile worlds, the Greek world, really mixed. We think there was something like 50,000 Jews living in Antioch and a whole population of about 300,000. It was one of the biggest cities of the Roman Empire. Later on, that centre of gravity would move to include Alexandra in Egypt, but ultimately to Rome. And that process of change continues today. If you think about the last several hundred years, the Christian centre of gravity has gone from Europe to North America, and now I think it's starting to move towards the global south. Asia, sub Saharan Africa, South America. Some people, when they find out what I do, think, gosh, it must be hard for you with Christianity dying. And I say, it's not dying. What's happening is it's becoming a two thirds world thing, it's becoming the faith of the world's poor. Christianity is a lot poorer and a lot browner than it was a hundred years ago. God changes. And I haven't been struck by lightning in saying that. God changes, at least in the way that God relates to his creation and his people. God changes. Now, I've sometimes talked about preaching as feeding the chooks, they chuck out grain and some bits go to some chooks and other bits go to others. I don't know how you feel about being likened to chickens, but I hope it's all right. But I got some interesting feedback from that most precious person, a friend who'll tell you the truth. And he said, about your preaching, Rod, yep. You're not strong enough on the so what? On the what do I do with this? And I, and I printed out eight of my sermons and I read them and I thought, yeah, I think you're right. So, one of the ways I'm going to try to address that is birdseed. So here's the birdseed that I can see in this: the stuff that might impact your Monday to Saturday life. Are there words that you've been that have been given to you? that have really landed like the one I mentioned earlier? What have you done with them? Do they need to be taken out of the memory drawer? Have the dust blown off them and re-examined? If you feel a bit lost, if you're not too sure where God is at the moment, I think a good strategy is to return to the last point when you knew where you were and where you were going. This works if you're trying to find your way to the Canterbury showgrounds and you're somewhere in Burwood. And it also works when you're trying to find your way back to God and his best for you. When did you last hear the voice of God and what was God saying? It's the first bit of birdseed. May apply, may not. Second bit is, change, like these, the initial church was going through, is hard. There's a sense of loss in play and deep grief for what's going on. And we are no different. 50 to 70 years ago, the Billy Graham era was in full voice in New Zealand. And this church was one of its epicenters was closely followed by the charismatic renewal of the 1970s and early 80s, which was a very exciting time for those swept up in it. Then it too ran out of steam, and in the 90s there was a big push towards community ministries, followed by the rise of the independent megachurches, the Grace Vineyards, the Arises, the Celebrations. Goodness knows what's next. But each of these new movements within God's church leaves a new group of Christians mourning their losses from the passing of the previous era. You see it now, for those who love, have loved the Easter camp, it must be very difficult to watch it decline by 50% over the last five years. Likewise, many people mourn the passing of Youth for Christ and those massive evangelistic rallies of the 80s and 90s. In the, in the now seven years that I've been here at Opawa, I have been told that if only I would preach the gospel every week, we would grow. Others have told me that I need to embrace the signs and wonders gifts and everything would be different. Still others, that the road to heaven is through community ministries. If we had access to the previous generations, they'd probably say we need to invest more in children's ministries. And even older still, the problem is that we're not committed to abstaining from alcohol. If you look back on one of those areas with great fondness and feel lost at its demise, then I think you need to give yourself permission to grieve its passing. It's okay to lament. We don't do it enough, and we don't do it very well. However, nostalgia becomes toxic if you hold on to it. It's also a little bit heretical. Let me explain what I mean. What all these complaints have in common is the idea that God works one way all the time. You know, this whole God-doesn't-change thing. I'm sure there'll be a verse to tack onto it. Nonsense. Acts 11, the story I've told you, records God changing, leading his people away from Temple Judaism and Jerusalem, which some hundreds of years before he had led them into. Likewise, in our era, God was in those post-war crusades. As people were challenged to get real with God, that nominal Christianity has almost no spiritual value. It doesn't save, it doesn't transform. Billy Graham and his friends were right. God was also in the charismatic renewal as people's hearts were more deeply engaged in worship, small group life flourished, and gift Based ministry emerged. Also he was in the community ministry movement, caring for the needs of our society, which the evangelical church, which we are a part of, had neglected up until that point. Our past, our heritage, the different, art, different strands are a rich garden from which we can pick flowers from which may well inform what we do now. But no one of these traditions is a roadmap for the future in its entirety. Seven years in, I'm still unsure what the future looks like here. And sitting with the notes from our recent Saturday planning day, I'm not yet any the wiser. Navigating in this era, is truly challenging. However, a few months ago, the board engaged Doug McConnell to help us in our ability to have spiritual conversations with the people in our lives, which if you look back through the annual reports of the last few years, you'll see how I've highlighted that this is the biggest issue that I think we have. Over the last 10 years, as Doug and I have walked together I've seen the spiritual fruit of his somewhat unique approach to discipleship. We have a Wednesday morning hui here and people are opening up to each other. From a 40-year-old meth addict through to an 80-year-old retired pastor, supporting each other, it's a beautiful thing. His insight that what Christians have in common with each other and with non-Christians is our pain, I think is profoundly true. We all carry it. You're not alone. God's healing and comfort for that pain is truly good news. Now he and I are looking to do a similar meeting on a thursday night we were where we would gather and share our stories and deeply listen to each other to grow to be healed and to know true freedom that our stories as we lift them up would become part of god's story so that we in our turn could confidently minister our gifts to Christians and non-Christians alike. Come talk to me if you're up for it. So there's the bird seed. Old words for you that have been neglected. Do you need to grieve for better times that have gone? If you do, do it. Where is God leading us? Please muse on this some more and pray. And my story, your story, God's story, are you up for it? Thank you for your kind attention. I'm relieved that my voice has made it. Musicians, would you please come forward?